Hello, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, where we talk about plant science. I'm Tegan. Hi, I'm Joram. Hi. Hi. I am Joram. How's it going, Joram? <laughs> Joram is sleepy. I'm a little bit sleepy. I, I'll keep my, do my best to stay awake and alert during th this show. I, on the other hand, am very wired from watching a ton of YouTube videos um, of like all of the best, you know, video hits that we used to watch when we were younger and just all, I mean, not even when we were younger, like obviously the best thing that is a music video that is on YouTube is Yaram, three, two, one, Bonnie <laughs> totally Tyler. Clips of the heart. Thank you very much. So um, I watched that with my housemate and then went from that to like, oops, I did it again. And then <laughs> all of the like... The perfect Crazy karaoke dramatic. songs, yeah. Yeah, and also like a lot of these songs, like ironic, um, Alanis Morissette, like a lot of these songs where the woman is just like, unabashedly crazy or oh, Sinead is it Sinead O'Connor yeah Sinead, um, nothing Sinead compares to you just these things where there's just like this kind of intensity that is just bizarre and yeah um Kim Brossettle Down I really like like she's she's dancing in a way that is it's quite restrained she's like standing on the spot but there's like so much coming out of her like just this like intensity and she's like staring down the camera like she's good yeah brilliant um if you guys are struggling with isolation right now i suggest you do that instead of watching netflix go and watch some like crazy <laughs> video hits because it is inspiring and yeah and the great thing is if you are by yourself you can sing in a crazier way i would say like i had yeah. to restrain my beautiful singing voice because of my housemate <laughs> because she could only put up with so much of my terrible, terrible, terrible singing. Um, yeah. So benefits of being alone. Yeah. My my um, my plug, my thing that I want to recommend as a music video is from the BC Boys, the Fight for Your Right Revisited. It's like a half an hour short film that they did, <laughs> which has like a crazy amount of cameos in there. Like the, the three BC Boys that are played by Elijah Wood, Seth Rogen and third one who forget, forgot Danny something um, and then they're like going, it's after the end of the original Fight for Your Right to Party music video where they completely trash a place and this sort of takes place when they stumble out of the place and like hit the, hit the streets um, and then it's like Orlando Bloom in it, Jason Schwartzman um, uh, and then later Will Ferrell and Jack Black and so on and it's all with like soundtrack from the Beastie Boys um, and a really crazy story and just famous people playing the, pretending to be the beastie boys um but it's like kind of a film after the music sort of like a music and then it carries on yeah. to a short film sort of thing it's sort of an extended music video like there's almost f mm. music throughout the entire thing there's like very short breaks um and it's sort of remixes of some of their songs uh and if you have if you have any little bit of of liking for or like interest in the bc boys like the whole thing is really cool it used to be very hard to find for a while because it was would always be taken down from youtube and there was like one vimeo link and i actually downloaded it once so i would have it on my hard disk for safekeeping but now it's on youtube now like uh, somebody mm. else uploaded it again and now you can find it and yeah, that always gives me joy. Like I, I sometimes just want to watch just like the beginning because the, the, the one in the very first scene is like Susan Sarandon is there. She's playing sort of the mother of the the person whose party they just crashed um, and they're coming home sort of the next morning and they see like all of the 
destruction. Um, it's, and so I just want to see that, but then I can't stop watching and like watch the entire half an hour again. And like, I know whenever I hit start on this one, I lose half an hour because I, I can't stop watching. I mean, I think I like, like some of the older videos that they just, they try to have a story in it, but the story is just like completely bizarre. Like it doesn't make any sense. And I mean, I was looking like Britney Spears, oops, I did it again. The storyline is that there's a guy on Mars, maybe, and he finds like something on the ground, which is possibly the Hope Diamond. And then he looks into it and then Britney starts singing at him while wearing like a rather red latex suit. Like the the narrative is there, but it's it's not coherent. Like yeah. it's a cheese dream of a narrative. I mean, it exists, but yeah. And I, I quite like that kind of when you just like, what is like, what is happening? Plus you get music and dancing. It's... It's an entire yeah. experience. I I don't know what music videos today look like, but there was definitely a period like late nineties, early two thousands, where like so much was happening in music videos. I just remember now from like X Gone Give It To You from DMX, which has like the I think it was also part of a music soundtrack, and so there's a lot of scenes from the movie in the music video, but it doesn't really make I don't any even sense. Know. What is this movie? Um, I don't know what movie it was, but it just looks so completely out of place. And then there's like a ton of very bad CGI, which was very much in fashion back then. And he's just like basically sitting behind a wheel in a car driving through the city. But you have like the camera zooming around him through like lots of fake car stuff. And it looks so terrible. Um, but it was it was the cr uh, biggest stuff back then. Like it was like everybody was was um, going crazy for it. Yeah, so just to acknowledge, guys, if, if 2020 is not doing it for you right now, which, I mean, I guess especially if you're in the US, that might highly be the case, um, yeah. go back a little bit in time. That's our recommendation to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah I already say that most stuff peaked in 2010, I think. Why 2010? All the years around it, but there was what like a, bizarre a lot of choice. There were, there were. You still had all of the like fresh stuff from the two thousands. It was all pretty good still, and you didn't have so much things going downhill in other respects. At least in my memories, like I think if you would, I think open, you were just like, younger book, and more I naive. Would... Yeah, I don't like... say that I peaked then. Like I definitely peaked later. But you probably did peak then. That was probably like no. I think culturally, um, from my limited perspective. I think that but was a pretty if, good time. Also, the internet was so claim. much better. The internet Who was so much better. Who makes the claim better. that 2010 was the best year ever? What a bizarre thing to say. <laughs> I mean, you always <laughs> ha have to ask, like, best for whom? But for like, I mean, obviously, best. For, but even best for you, I'm just, I'm confused. Like for white kids, white kids in Central Europe, I think it was a pretty good time. <laughs> you and all the other white boys in Central Europe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for, for us, wow. we had a time of our lives. No, for me, like, it was also, I mean, in 2010, I was, like, 22, um, and so I I was living on my own. I had, um, like, I had my first job, so I had a little bit of money, but I was still going to university with no real um, sort of obligations, and so... I mean, that's exactly it, right? It's like you were not a man, not yet a woman, or whatever the song is, not a boy, not yet a man. I'm Britney Spears in here. Um, yeah, it's it's like when you had a bit of freedom but didn't have responsibility. That's that's why it's peak for you, I guess. Yeah, but I also like yeah. If I just look back at the internet, there were so many really cool things online, and there wasn't as much like advertisement. There were no social networks. There were no algorithms that defined what you were looking at. 
you just had to really sort of dig through stuff and find cool things on your own and you did because mm -hmm. there was so much good stuff and yeah there was no facebook that could tell you like vote for this like racist or here is like a crazy relative of yours and their insane opinions like none of that <laughs> happened yet I mean, at least like when the social networks did come, what was that? That would have been 20, 2007 or something that Facebook started becoming big, right? Yeah, not in um, Germany. Like in Germany, it started okay. very late. I might, I might also be wrong. But at least at that stage, like, yeah, your family was not all on Facebook. Although for me yeah. now, like Facebook, like the reason I use it is because my family back home is on Facebook. So that's how I like stay in contact with my cousins and their kids and see what they're doing, which is yeah. kind of nice. Anyway, what else yeah. have you been doing with your life apart from <laughs> reminiscing of the good old times of 2010? I started listening to the Time Capsule playlist on Spotify, which is also sort of the music from this time period, which makes me really realize, like, when I was a child, I was always um, being annoyed at my parents listening to the oldie radio station that would just play, like, the best of the 70s and 80s, um, mm. which was, like, all old people music for me growing up. Um, and now I'm the same. Like my my boy will grow up um, with a father who listens like only to the old music. It's like ah, oh, this is they don't make the music like they used to anymore. <laughs> but apart from that, I um, finished building a bed. Like I have a little corner and I put a bed in the corner. Um, and that was a lot of fun, like working with wood. And now it's done. And um, yeah, I have ordered a mattress to put on there. And it's like a major big project. There was a lot of fun. Like I didn't chop yeah, any of my cool. fingers off, so I can show I can show it. Some to you. accomplishment. I mean, not to the listeners, you know. No, you no, not it. to the listeners. Oh, it's kind of on drawers. That's pretty clever. It's got like storage underneath it. Yeah, I, cool. I build it sort of around an IKEA cupboard, and then I put like mm -hmm. a wooden frame around it, um, and there's like some space in the corner where you can drop stuff, and you can take out sort of the the what's the word? Skills. Like, yeah. Bedding. The bedding is inside. Yeah, so you do have storage space underneath and so on. And it's just like a, a cool little corner. It's for guests. And um, when some one of the two of us really needs to get some sleep, then we can sort of escape the, the crying baby and go to mm -hmm. another bed. favorite plant um so th this week uh, we're talking about favorite plants and it's my turn and i picked um an artemisia plant Ooh, i know them yeah but uh, i think we haven't talked about the one um that i want to talk about today it's absinthium um and you might, yeah you might guess from the name it's it's named after abs absinthe because actually when it was named um the plant had already sort of the common name of absinthe and then it was sort of just formalized in its Latin name. Um, uh, the other name sounds to me like a Harry Potter plant. It's wormwood, um, mm. which is another common name that's very often used. And um, yeah, it's a small like shrubby plant. I mean, it can grow up to two meters high, but it's sort of, it's not really a tree or anything. Um, it has pale green leaves and they look very special because they're covered in lots of trichomes and these are it's like little spikelets you have on plant leaves or stems that are often sort of defensive uh, mechanisms because they're filled with liquids and then when like a predator bites into it or touches it they pierce the skin or they break them off and release whatever they have in them 
And in Artemisia absinthium, um, they have uh, a lot of oils, like very fragrant oils in them that probably have also some like protective roles for, for the plant. But for us, it's interesting because that makes it a very interesting ingredient for drinks. Um, so absinthe and vermouth, um, is that pronounced correctly? You are I don't know. Um, it's, it's what you from use to make a dry martini, right? Yeah. And from its spelling, I would call it vermouth. I think it's vermouth. Is it vermouth? Yeah. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm going to call it vermouth. Pretend we're vermouth. classy and we know what we're talking about. Um, yeah. And so this plant is native to Eurasia and Northern Africa and actually has been used for hundreds to thousands of years already in drink making. Um, then uh, in, in the areas, like it w was added to like crude wines and so on. Um, often it's, it's hypothesized that it's used because um, it has a very strong taste And that helps to cover up if you have a rather low quality alcohol, like if mm -hmm. you have like like a not very well fermented wine or something. If you add that to it, you can sort of cover up um, how terrible your drink is, and you can get drunk without actually having to have something good. Um, I think that's that's why I started drinking gin and tonic is because the, the bitter taste of the tonic covers the bitterness of the the alcohol, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, gin and tonic, good gate gateway drinking. <laughs> yeah although my gateway was always like sweet stuff but um yeah. gin and tonic is also is also very good um and you might have heard that absinthe was outlawed um in the early 20th century because it made people crazy um and they the belief back then it was that it's due to like back then it was believed that it was due to the specific nature of absinthe that made people crazy um, and then later they discovered that in absinthe there's a compound called tujone or thujone. Um, again, weird spelling. Where I have no idea how to pronounce it properly in English. Um, but uh, thujone is um, yeah a molecule that you find in in um, wormwood, but also in some other plants like sage and mint and uh, oregano. And this can be toxic in very high dosages. Um, so in 60 milligrams per kilogram body weight, it's lethal. Um, at 30 milligrams, it's safe. And somewhere in between, there's a LD50 dosage. And so people thought that this is like, that's why the, the drink um, got people insane. And so it was banned. But wait, um, wait, wait. When you say crazy, you mean like they actually go mad? Not just like, I'm having a crazy good time. You mean like actual... There was like this mental break from having poisonous substances. Yeah, there was this idea that um, there, there was a, a time when absinthe, like in the late 19th century, was very much in fashion and sort of artists and poets and so on would drink it and get inspiration from it, is what I said. And I said that it created sort of hallucinations and yeah, made people go really mentally crazy. But that's what um, I associate it with, like, yeah, with hallucinations, but not, like, long-term psychotic breaks. So, I think my reference is this um, Moulin Rouge film yeah, where uh, they drink it and then Kylie Minogue rocks up and is like, I'm the Green Fairy and she's running around and everybody's <laughs> tripping. I mean, that's historically accurate, but uh, okay, I thought so. what it's often um, put in context with is Van Gogh. He cut off his ear because he went crazy from absence. That's sort of the story that's told well, very he was often. Just, he was just very depressed, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, nowadays, I think we know that, like, first of all, we know that the, the Thujone compound doesn't make you crazy. Like, it can okay. induce seizures, that's like, um, because it, it works on um, a neuron a neuronal transmitter, sort of antagonistic to alcohol. 
Um, so where alcohol sort of relaxes muscles and makes it harder to move, this sort of induces like um, rapid firing of the neurons so that you ha get like spasms and seizures. Um, a bit terrifying. And so actually one of the treatments for thujone poisoning is that you give alcohol um, to sort of counter it, which also means that if you serve this in a drink that has alcohol in it, the compound can't really do anything because sort of the yeah. alcohol and the compound both compete for the same receptor, have antagonistic Cancels properties, cancel each other out sort of. Um, I mean, so, it's more complicated so it, than that. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm no doctor. Please don't quote me on that. Sure, sure. But so, if the thujone isn't doing the the trippiness, does it mean that people were just getting really drunk and they were thinking they were tripping, or was there something else in there? Was there e ever anything that was actually hallucinogenic in absinthe, or is it just a myth? From it's it seems to be a myth. From what um, I found is that some people even tried to recreate the old recipes, and there was never anything sort of special in it. Um, you could like a, an absinthe from the 19th century would be as safe to drink as a modern day absinthe. Um, uh, and the main thing that's hypothesized is that this spirit like absinthe is usually um, bottled at 70 to 80% alcohol, which is about twice as much alcohol per bottle as you find in a whiskey or a vodka or something like this. So people would just like completely overdose on alcohol, probably get like variations of alcohol poisoning or get very, very much addicted to alcohol very quickly. And yeah. um, I mean, damage to the brain is one of the many side effects of alcohol poisoning or alcohol. Um, um, so what if you are uh, addiction, addiction. Um, uh, to alcohol addiction? So um, probably they were like they they suffered from alcohol addiction and not really from uh anything that's in the absinthe um and so we are today in the united states you ca can't sell any absinthe that contains any tujone from the um fr from the, the plant wormwood. Uh -huh. from the wormwood um in the european union there's like limits to it which is weird because like for other food groups as i said like in sage you find much higher concentrations of it and you can even buy sage oil where i found in one source that it up to 50 percent of the sage oil is to joan so um you could really um poison yourself with it but in the united states this is sort of considered food safe while its absence is not but i guess it's like historical reasons um so yeah it's absolutely fine to drink and there's another cool thing about absinthe that's then linking back to artemisia absinthium um and the oils that you find in there in the trichomes that because when you drink have you ever drinking drunken absinthe i don't think so no i think i did it like once or twice and like two ways one way is to like pour it over uh, a sugar cube and set it on fire and let it then drop in there um uh in in your glass and then dilute it with water later on that's sort of the fancy like the the effectful um way of drinking it but what what's usually done is that you um have a slotted spoon and then you pour water over it very slowly and sort of drips into your alcohol and slowly dilutes it and by slowly diluting it you sort of change the ratio of water to alcohol in there and that um means that the solubility of these oils changes and it's they undergo chemical changes and they are released and become actually fragrant. And so only by oh, very cool. slowly dropping it in there, you slowly release all of the fragrant uh, molecules in there and then you can actually taste them and drink them. And so they say it's, it's called a cer uh, ceremony that you actually very carefully prepare your drink by dripping water in there to release all of these oils um, that you can then taste. Um, 
Yeah. And I got Sorry, kids, go out and get yourself some absinthe. <laughs> yes. That's what I'm Please hearing. Please drink responsibly, especially. And when I ab- say kids, I mean people over is it eighteen in this country? Eighteen. In 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 yeah, I think in our two countries it's eighteen. Um check your local laws before <laughs> going out to drink. And also please don't light uh, absinthe on fire. Um, Wait, what, drinking why? and fire don't really mix. Um, That's not true. You can light the first one on fire, but once you've had two or three, no more fire. Like there's got to be a fire limit. Do it with matches and then like only give yourself three or four matches. And once you've used the matches, no more fire <laughs> And also have some water nearby to extinguish any fires. <laughs> Tie your hair back. Um, yeah. And I if you do accidentally light a fire, like maybe just take that user and burn the system down because <laughs> things are not going very well politically right now. Just like, mean, yeah, if you, you could, have a fire make use of it is all we're saying i mean yeah you could absolutely use that chance that presents itself and <laughs> take it um yoram i have some suspicions about where you maybe got the facts <laughs> yes. for this about this this wormwood yeah artemisia absinthine it's called yeah yeah i got this um from a book and a book a is book called, you say yeah a book for some <laughs> reason i'm reading books now yeah um and the reason is, as you might have guessed by now, um, it's for our next episode of the Plant Book Club. We're reading The Drunken Botanist, um, a book by Amy St- uh, Stewart, where the book talks a lot about the the impact of plants on spirits, on alcohol and on drinks um, from from the plants that we used to make drinks like potato and corn and uh, wheat uh, to the plants that we used to flavor our drinks, like in gins or in this case from wormwood. And there I found also um, a short chapter about absinthe and that sort of got me started to read a little bit more about it. Yeah. So that's uh, my favorite part of the week. Uh, Artemisia absinthium. Diversity in the plants. Science. Um, Okay, so it is me. (laughs) And today I want to talk about two people, but not one person, but these two people together only have two names. So the two people are Scheherazade and Ardianciono. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. Um, But Scheherazade is a conservation scientist and Ardianciono is a um, biodiversity science um, coordinator. They're both very heavily involved in conservation within Indonesia. Um, These two people came up in a career column that was published in Nature a couple of days back, and it's called Attention Science, Some People Have Only One Name. So the two authors of this column, it's Scheherazade and Ardiantiono, and they don't have a surname, so to speak. They have a single name, each of them. And Mm -hmm. it's actually kind of an interesting issue because they were talking about the fact that it's not uncommon in Indonesia for people to just have a single name. So not to have a first name and a last name, but just to have like one single name. And then this becomes very problematic when kind of getting into different um, scientific organizations, publishing conferences, because often this stuff now involves automated forms, which require you to propagate like both the first name and the last name box. So like, you know, you want to log on to a website, you need to put your first and your last name in. You want to register for a conference, you want to publish something, you have to put your first and your last name in. And they're saying, well, you know, we don't have necessarily this last family name. So instead people are putting, just repeating the first name or putting some variant of NA, which can then be problematic because sometimes you get this 
assumption that these are not real people. It makes it very hard to legitimize the identity mm-hmm. of the people, especially if they're doing different response. Like, you know, if sometimes you put an NA and sometimes you put, um, you know, a variation of your person. I can imagine this, this becomes difficult. So basically the point here, I, I encourage you to all read the article. It's quite short. But the point is basically that this is a bias in the system, which is selecting for, you know, the westernized version of having this first name and this last name. And it means that you're just disadvantaging people who come from different systems. Um, and at the end of the article, they encourage using unique identifiers like um, ORCID codes. This is kind of a, a a long code that can be assigned to a scientist, which then is a unique identifier that they can use for all of their kind of scientific contexts. Um, and this issue is linked not just to some people in Indonesia, but it also seems to have some relevance um, for people perhaps coming from um, the south of India. So there was another article back in 2008, also in Nature, by three um, South Indian ancestry um, scientists. And they were talking about how they don't have surnames as well and therefore they tend to use um, substitutes to try and you know fit in with this need to have a surname um, which yeah it, it's quite interesting I there's there's then a response to that article which talks about how the reason the people don't have surnames might also be then linked back to deliberately losing those surnames perhaps generations before as a way of avoiding discrimination of the grounds of caste so, you know, if a certain surname is linked to a certain social status, it might be disadvantaged. It might be a disadvantage to keep that surname. So then these surnames got dropped. But now these people don't have surnames, which is like, that's, that's not a problem. The problem is that the systems we have don't acknowledge that this is the reality for some people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's like... It's, it's quite an important part of, of one of the issues of, of science, I think. This doesn't just happen in the case of people who don't have a surname as with these Indonesian and um, South Indian authors. But there's also a big problem we have when it comes to non-Westernized names and then Westernizing names. So the, the really obvious example is coming from Chinese names to like the Westernized version of those names, which are then often harder to find because... Um, the the kind of the diversity of names that's present in the original characters has been like um, romanized um, into like letters, which then makes it just di- more difficult to search for people. And there's often mistakes made with translation, and all of these things are a huge bias in the system that then creates yeah. a disadvantage for people who are not basically coming from the certain backgrounds and often situated, you know, in Europe, North America, um, yeah, this kind of stuff. So. I think it's it's all part of a pretty interesting discussion. Yeah, and it reminds me of a episode I listened to from the Reply All podcast, episode one hundred thirty nine. Um, it's called the Reply All Hotline, where a, um, a listener calls from Syria and they want to register in Canada for university, and they have the problem that in the Syrian passport the names are written in all caps, and when they enter that in the to the website, the website says like you you must not use all caps here please write it as it's stated in your passport and the passport has it in all caps so um this this is then what the, the listener um the, the problem that the listener runs into them into there and then the two like hosts from reply all day they find out they figure out a way to help them to actually register for the university but this can be like 
as simple things as that, like a badly programmed form that just assumes that everybody is like first name, last name with capital letters and then lowercase letters after that mm -hmm. and completely ignoring the fact that there is so many different cases out there where this doesn't apply. But yeah, then and then they say like, look, we never had a problem because nobody in our system came up to us with that because they were blocked already before they could get into the system. Yeah, this is... <laughs> it seems like something that should be fixable honestly it does seem like something yeah. that's yeah but same for like the first name last name thing it should be fixable um but it's like no there's many like pretend reasons why these things are not fixed like sometimes I they can, say like, there's like laws and sometimes they say like look we need to know how to address people and sometimes it's like look if we stop doing this here then like what else will happen and um yeah no i can understand it from a human point of view so like if i'm i'm looking at lots of different names i can very easily recognize like the western names that i can recognize what's the first and the last name like kevin smith i know which is which and i can also recognize that kevin is like a traditionally male name so i can kind of associate that with you know a you know gender or whatever and potentially if i have an image i can kind of like match that as well so i have those kind of abilities out of familiarity not anything more than that right so there is like a familiarity issue where like if it's, for example, um, an Israeli name, we have a lot of Israeli friends, but I wouldn't be able to tell which name is, is male or female unless it's something that, I, you know, it's also co-opted into like Australian yeah. culture with, with like, yeah. So I think there's there's something like that, which is not really, I mean, that's less of the problem and more of just kind of a, a familiarity, but then there's like the systems behind that, which... Yeah are actually an issue um but i think just just knowing about it like i honestly didn't know that there was people who do not have a surname in, in indonesia and apparently south india I, I didn't know this at all this is not something that i had thought about and definitely that's a standard thing first name and last name um yeah and also like to me it was very interesting this then backstory with the southern indian the idea that the reason those people don't have surnames is some of them have dropped it because the name was associated with a caste. So, yeah. and this is something that we might have discussed before. Like, I think in, in Germany, there's a thing about the name Kevin where it's associated with kind of, um, like, people think that Kevin is a name of a stupid person somehow. There's like a, a, yeah. an association with... It has a bad reputation. And there has been studies done where sort of the same work in class was graded differently depending on whether it was like a kevin or a peter that was handing in the work um because like internalized biases by by teachers would result in worse grades we have the same for like turkish sounding names um there has been like so many studies yeah yeah so the the example i know is in the US, there's something very similar. So we've discussed before, like the male and female name on the same CV and the male gets, you know, more opportunities. It's the same with like more traditionally like African-American sounding names. Uh, that's again, of course, a bias where they yeah. do not get offered the same wage or are less likely to get offered jobs just based on the name having links, which, you know, people yeah. have biases against. So it's, yeah, it's all quite interesting. But yeah, anyway, um, <laughs> back to the original article. As I said, we will put the link um, to the article because I think it's something to like to me, it was definitely a surprise. I had never come across this before. Um, 
and yeah, also Scheherazade and Ardiantiono, they seem like cool people. So um, Scheherazade is actually the president of Tambora Munda Indonesia, which is a uh, a network that is aiming to build like Indonesian young conservationists. So I think probably you guys know that Indonesia has just some of the most amazing and unique. It's like a biodiversity hotspot. A lot of the there's like a lot of islands um, that make up. Indonesia as a country and these just have some of the most unique flora and fauna in the world so conservation is really really important there especially because there are ongoing problems with like availability funds and you know associated uh, loss of habitat and so on so this seems like a really great thing um yeah Shahrazad has dedicated their life to trying to promote conservation and building conservation networks, um, training seminars, talks, all of that sort of stuff. So it's really cool. And Ardantionio, I'm so sorry, I think I'm saying that wrong. But if you go to their ResearchGate page, they have the first name, Ardantionio, Tiono, sorry. And then the, the last name that has put in is just the word only, which I think <laughs> is also like a really, you know, kind of a way of showing the, the problem with the system, I guess. Um, I wonder what would happen if you would put special characters in there. Like there's like the, uh, these like protected white space characters that don't really print anything, but they are mm -hmm. registered as a character. Um, but also like emoji. Like I would play around and then like put my favorite emoji. But this is often this is often a problem. Also, so like also with with authorship, it can be not possible to put non like English keyboard characters. So we know this like even with the German, mm -hmm. you have these umlaut letters so like a letter with two dots on top of it yeah. um and they often have to be translated so like an o with an umlaut becomes oe um yeah. in like the english way of saying it and like this is already just german to english which is quite um a close like they're, they're very closely related languages but i mean then if you're coming from chinese japanese korean where you have different um symbols i think it's just often not possible you it just like and i mean not possible not because we're not able to do this, but because somebody has made a choice that this is not possible, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because by now we are in a in a place where technically I don't really see how that could be a problem. Like my web browser can display all kinds of characters. So if, and, I mean, if the, the website is coded is... properly, I can like the the title name they could be all in like chinese like kanji a character is it kan i'm sorry uh in like chinese characters or in like sanskrit or any other language like I've, so it technically it's not a problem it's a choice as you said like and also like having having both could be like really advantageous because i think the example i saw was like just the simple like the surname wang in um chinese there's kind of two very common um like Wang is is the convergence of two different Chinese surnames with different characters, right? Which then are both translated into Wang. So, like, if I have both, you know, Mr. Wang 1 and Mr. Wang 2, and that now I have the two versions, I've... It's more... It's more unique. If, if you include the characters, it includes... It, it... I don't know how to say that properly. <sighs> what am I trying to say, Yarm? I mean, you get... You get additional layers of information that make it easier to actually attribute work to the right people to get in contact with the right people and technically it's not a problem like it doesn't cost anything apart from 
being willing to put in some time to rework your interface so that it both can be displayed. Um, but apart from that, like we're not in the days anymore where you could say, oh, paper is precious. And if we put now all of the names in sort of the, the local spelling and the English spelling, then we have to print twice as many pages of our journal. That's not the case anymore. So it doesn't really cost anything to do that. Um, and yeah, it would, it would also, to me, it's also a thing of sort of respect and valuing um, the, these, these people because you sort of force them to fit into like the English based um, well, it's just this general structure. idea we have of like, this is the default. The default is this and yeah. like, adapt to the default, which we have with, with everything, right? With with genders and like sexuality. Yeah. Like, here is the default. Now try and like make yours fit into the default. And it just doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really work. Anyway, that is my article. I'll put all the links in there, um, including the links to the individual websites of the two people. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias, bias. bias. My bias this week, I want to talk about naive realism. Um, and I even put figured out how to do like the eye with the two dots, like the special character coming back from like mm. a previous segment. Um, you know, like I have no no sympathy when it comes from like German names with the two dots. <laughs> it's like get over it. Uh, You're like Müller yeah. with an UE now. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because I lived in Germany for too long, and I like have a lot of German friends now. So I'm just like, you'll be fine. <laughs> like your life is not that hard. But then I'm the first <laughs> one to complain when like they won't accept Amorego Marit as one name with a hyphen. I'm like, no, it's not two names. It's one name. Like, why does your system not acknowledge that my name has a hyphen? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, naivety. What are we doing? No, naive realism. Um, maybe, I guess you will have heard of the concept. I think it's something that we touched already before a little bit with other biases because they all overlap. So the idea is that um, if you are prone to this bias um you think that you are objective but everybody else around you is not um and they are influenced by ideologies and partisanship um and they are mostly driven by these effects while you are not like you are completely like your own rational mind while everybody else is like they're democrats or republicans and that's like everything they they all the actions are defined through that or they're Very like topical, christians yeah. or atheists or um so all of these things where you then assume that the others are um completely influenced by that and there's one there's like many examples for this and there's one that i want to specifically point out here that i took from the wikipedia article here that's about um the hostile media effect um, and there they, it's a uh, study that they did in uh, 1985. Um, and they wanted to show how people tend to represent, e uh, uh, interpret even neutral information according to this bias, because they then think they themselves, they are objective, but the other, the media, they are biased, um, and they're following ideology. And so in the study, um, 
there were um, um, pro-Israeli and pro-Arab students were asked to watch real news coverage from the 1982 Sabra and Shatila massacre, which was um, a massive killing of Palestinian refugees. So very horrible stuff. But there was the news about it. They were represented in a fairly neutral way. And then they found that both partisans, both camps said, this is biased me media um, um, influenced by the ideology of the opposing camp. So the pro-Israeli students said this is pro-Arab propaganda and the pro-Arab oh, wow. students said this is pro-Israeli uh, propaganda because they picked out the points that were contradicting their own ideas and then constructed from that that they must be also part of the like ideology that they are not objective anymore. They are subjective and influenced by this. Mm -hmm. um, And we see that, I mean, we see that today with, um, like, places where you have two camps opposing each other. Um, what's, what's, the, what's the current day example? I, that I don't know what that, that is. It maybe like, Coke, where there's Pepsi? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> But, yeah, this is this, we have this tendency um, to, like, overestimate the influence of ideology on others and underestimate the influence of ideology on ourselves. Um, and linked to that is also the naive cynicism bias. Um, that's um, there. The train of thought goes like this: that you say, "I am correct," and if you disagree with me, that's because you're biased, and all of your actions are influenced by your bias. Um, and so, I can't be wrong in this uh, if I if I follow this idea. Um, and unlike this naive realism here, it's not. That um, I, that cynists believe that it's sort of ideology and outside influences that drive their actions and thoughts, but it's sort of their own uh, selfishness, their own egocentrism that makes them biased and makes them wrong. Like the outcome is very com comparable. It's this idea that you yourself, you are uh, capable of seeing through everything and you are... Um, Wait, the naive cynicism, they think that everybody else like kind of knows they're wrong but just wants their own way they basically think that everybody else is a bit of a jerk yeah or that they have uh, internalized bias where they don't realize how they're wrong but it's sort of coming from inside them that they're wrong but it's somehow more deliberate right it's like yeah so it's, it's then the, whenever you don't you can't attribute and straight up ideology then you can go to this part and say like they they are inherently biased um and therefore they're wrong and You co they construct a bias already um, in the first step when they say like they themselves they're 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 right they they can't be wrong, and mm -hmm. therefore the others if they disagree they have to have a bias because they can't have a valid point um, because in the first step it was established that you're you're not wrong like you're right, but also not just that you're right that you're objectively right like you yeah. are purity and rightness and correctness yeah this sounds really fun I think like. I mean, I'm sure my deep, my my dear friends are already like, shut up, Tegan, don't learn that. Um, but I think I'm gonna live my life like this from now on. Like, really, <laughs> not just like do it because we all have biases, and I I already do do it, but like actively try to achieve what is it called? Yeah. Naive, cynicism. naive cynicism. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's I've like recently I came across a couple of people who completely. Um, Yeah, could not fathom, fathom the idea that they might be wrong about something. So they sort If of. If one go of these people is me, I'm going to be no. really angry. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't you. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm not saying anything. Um, no, it wasn't you. I, I mean, Tegan is perfect. Let's say that Tegan is perfect. <laughs> <Your voice. laughs> 
Just edit that in, please. <laughs> no, there were were other people, and it's like too too much to to explain the details. But they also went sort of into the argument um, with a position of like complete certainty that they are correct, and there's like not a grain of doubt in their argue in their case that they might actually be wrong. Like they they were um hundred percent. Were they hoax viruses? No, no, it it was like in in sort of like job context stuff. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, they, it reminded me when I read about the cynicism, like this very first step where you already say like I'm correct, mm -hmm. and therefore if you criticize me, there must be something wrong with you. Um, you must have a bias or you're controlled by ideology because I am correct. I know that, and you can't tell me otherwise. We do that so much in science because as much as we like to believe that we're all following the evidence, most of the time when we are, you know, close to a subject, we're studying it, we're developing hypotheses. Like most of the time we do have a thought of which way things are going to turn out. We believe that, you know, our hypothesis will either be supported or not supported, but we have, we're not neutral in this. So I think there's this tendency, especially when we start to gather some evidence and then have one theory that you develop your theory and then you look for the evidence that supports that. And then if somebody else comes against you, you're like, oh, no, no, he just hates my work or she's always like studied the opposite thing. And that's why she's like crapping on my model. And it's like, maybe, maybe your model is wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite common to have two very opposite fields studying the same small niche topic in science, right? Where there's like, the A camp and the B camp and you know A camp is like don't let B camp comment on my publications because they have the opposite view and it's not mm. yeah mm. yeah and sometimes I think you can argue and you can make a case where this is, is acceptable but if this becomes sort of your your overarching narrative that you just say like like either like either I'm correct or you're wrong but there's mm. no way that I'm wrong um <laughs> so therefore so this the, uh, like this is the point where it gets uh becomes problematic but yeah so that's naive realism and naive cynicism um both linked in the show notes this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins i have to acknowledge that a lot of my fun facts are actually mildly terrifying i would say I mean, they're not, they're somewhat detached from the real world, which makes them more pleasing. Um, <laughs> they're not political. <laughs> Let's start with the political one first. Um, we didn't mention this last week, I don't think, um, yeah. simply because we had a guest on the show. But um, so I, a couple of weeks back, Scientific American, which is a kind of science magazine, uh, came out actually endorsing a presidential candidate. So they made a statement for um, Biden. And they said, you know, in our 175-year history, we've never, ever got involved in this. We've never endorsed a presidential candidate. But we have to. And the reason is not because we are pro-Democrats and against Republicans or even because we're, like, specifically pro the individual people. It's simply because we are pro-science and Donald Trump has, and the phrase is, badly damaged the US and its people because he rejects evidence and science. And in the same time, in the last couple of months, um, for a while now, actually, but like more strongly recently, um, Science Magazine has also had some editorials which pretty strongly condemn the anti-science stance of Trump. So that's what's happening in the science world as far as politics go. 
Yeah, uh, I, I said this at a different place already. I don't know, maybe not on a recording. I find it sort of devastating, but also a little bit reassuring that more people become political now, like institutions and places that that were very proud in sort of staying out of the political game for pretty much ever. Um, um, they are now raising their voices and um, yeah. making sure that that yeah they they're not running they're away not from the influence and the impact that they have because i think that's something at this point nobody can afford to do that anymore if you have any sort of reach you must use it for the greater good which means like stopping trump um you can't just accept staying quiet and staying out of it and then accepting that uh, he will be reelected so um I, I hope that it will will help and will work out. And I want to stress that whenever we're like quiet on a topic, or I mean, I mean, we're often very like um, strong with our like words and our positions. But whenever we're quiet about it, it's not because we don't care. But to me, this is a little bit of a safe space here where I don't have to think as much about politics as I do during the day because I'm very often very frustrated to devastated when i read the news this is like always this discussion where we're like how much should we talk about covid and politics this this week and how much should we just do fun yeah. stuff because so but i think it's important to to acknowledge it um at least uh from time to time and talk about it and, and say like please i don't think that any our any one of our listeners is actually like trump voter if you are get out no i'm sorry no please <laughs> please if you are reconsider seriously um and look yeah look anywhere and that's not like facebook groups or anything like any i don't know i find it so hard at at this stage if you're still tr supporting trump it's no longer lack of it's 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 willful ignorance it's not just like lack yeah. of education like lack of i i don't know at, at this point yeah. it's not i don't think it's okay anymore but yeah. all right Obviously, there are different people with different priorities. Okay, let's let's do something that's kind of scary, but like less. I mean, it's more of a Tegan scary than like the entire world scary. And this is you guys might have seen that Science Magazine. The front of the magazine is just a massive crow staring angrily down, not even looking at the camera, kind of looking aloof and evil. Um, and there was a publication which came out in Science by Stacho and colleagues. Um, on the 25th of September, and it's called A Cortex-Like Canonical Circuit in the Avian Forebrain. And basically, all of this is just saying that for a long time, people basically thought that bird brains are less complex than, for example, mammalian brains, which raised the question of, you know, are, because of these brain shapes and these, these structures, are birds just always going to be a bit stupider than mammals are, like potential-wise? But of course, we know that's not true because there have been a lot of studies that have shown that crows are terrifying and they're coming for us and they can learn our faces, they can remember our names, they can probably like tell their friends that they hate us, etc., etc. Like, beware the crows. Um, <laughs> you've heard the right, guys. <laughs> um, but basically, this is now showing that bird brains look different but that doesn't mean that they are not capable of doing amazing things and it's again a reminder that sometimes we have this tendency to you know this this old i think it's attributed to 
to Einstein, right? Like if you judge a fish on its ability to climb a tree. Like if you're trying to look for certain things that confirm what you already know, you might miss that things still work. They just work in different ways from what you're used to. Um, so it's it's kind of cool from that lesson, but it's also cool because it shows that birds are terrifying, which I've been saying all along and I feel super vindicated. So beware <laughs> the birds. Yeah, and I ha I have another um, fact, sort of a follow-up thing um, that goes in the same of direction of you being right, because um, it's from <laughs> Al Kowaleski. Uh, Al Kowaleski on Twitter says that um, you were right about cassava in our, I think, uh, not in the last episode, but in the episode before that, um, where we talked about um, cassava. Is oh, I said it's poisonous unless you like um, grind it and leach the the poison over several days, right? Yeah, so he says that um, there are some in which root is still toxic and requires special preparation, um, but all of them still have toxic leaves. Um, I mean, Ooh. he put a question mark behind all. So I guess in biology, there's always like the one exception. Like whenever you say every member of this and then somebody goes, no, no, there's actually there's one that doesn't. Um, so nah, most of them, the large majority of them have toxic leaves um, and drying them um, gets rid of the toxicity. But then they're very nutritious. And there's actually um, some dishes in the northern part of Brazil that are made from cassava leaves um, that are detoxified through drying. And he linked to that. Um, and it's a manichoba, um, like the C has a little hook underneath, so I don't exactly know how it's pronounced. In French, it would be a hard sound, manichoba, maybe? I don't know. But anyway, it's a festive dish in the Brazilian cuisine that's made from, that contains um, the leaves of manioc that uh, have to be boiled for a week or at least four days wow. um, to remove the hydro uh, hydrogen cyanide that's in them. Um, so to make it actually so, safe. I have to say, I like that I'm right, obviously. Um, but I'm not sure if that is what I, I think I was thinking of something different because I was thinking of it being the starchy bits that had to be ground and washed and ground and washed. So it might no, I be... Think it there it's just like there there exists as well. Like uh, I mean, this oh, okay. is just an example of the the leaves. But in, in cassava, there's definitely okay. also varieties where the root, so the starchy bit, is still toxic and needs some special preparation. Cool, Tegan wins again and again and again. Like <laughs> just to come again with a theme of something that's terrifying and kind of science fictiony, along with the birds and the velociraptors and the zombies. Um, there was a short briefing in the Nature Briefing, which is entitled Alexa, Do I Have COVID-19? And it's referencing an article that talks about the potential ability for artificial intelligence in the future to recognize our physical and mental conditions based on our voices, which is quite terrifying, I would say. Yeah. I'm Very cool. Very terrifying. Yeah. On a technical level, I think that's fascinating on a sort of civil rights level i find that yeah i find that terrifying to imagine that there's like trained um sets of for for artificial intelligence i mean it's always about the trained data sets right oh um, that's already yeah whenever you're training it it's always getting this, this very uh, strong bias right yeah as, first of all that but also like it's so expensive to create these data sets that you have to oh. have a very good reason to make this and if you now use covid as a reason to train your data set 
then you might want to use it afterwards for something else as well. And then suddenly you have like a data set that can can tr understand your emotion that can be useful during COVID times where you can like figure out who's sort of borderline depressed, who needs mental help, who needs other sort types of assistance where that's, I mean, there's hardly anything to say against this this idea. But then if you then use it later on, if you say like, now we have already this like trained open data set and now we can use that to see people watch an advertisement and then from the way they talk to each other, we can see if the advertisement Im impressed them or not. That's mm. pretty dystopian and something yeah, that I or like really Yara's want to feeling see. a bit down. Let's try to sell him stuff because we know he spends more money when he's down. I mean, if it was just like Tegan's feeling a bit like sad today, let's play Bonnie Tyler again. Fine. Like if the if the entire thing is like a loop that includes total eclipse of the heart and my emotions, I'm okay with that. But otherwise, it's just really a bit terrifying. And well, I you can don't also need, imagine you need artificial intelligence for that. You just need a program that from in random intervals plays Bonnie Tyler because either you like it because you're happy or because <laughs> you're sad bernie tyler works for all occasions <laughs> um <laughs> i can imagine also that we would then adapt like that i would just always speak like this yarm just so that nobody can tell if i'm emotional or not at the moment like yeah. we would have to find and as somebody who's already quite emotionally repressed and actually struggles to like tell their friends they love them in the first place <laughs> like having something then track like how i'm feeling would just make me like like shrink up <laughs> yeah yeah imagine that you're talking to i don't know a bank teller and they tell you you don't get the credit that you need to pay for your house and they have a software running or it's even like over the internet now and you sort of raise your voice or anything and they are, the software picks it up and it immediately has like dire consequences for your negotiation or anything or even if it's like subtle things that even if it's not just you get angry but you could understand that they hang up on you Oh my god, and I mean, again, the bias. Like, like Tegan's voice is high-pitched. That must mean she's hysterical. Like, yeah. and I'm, I'm using the gender bias, which is going to be, like, one of the least bad ones I can imagine is going to come. Like, think of all the yeah. class and the race. I mean, there's already, there is already a lot of bias built into the way we talk, right? And interpretations of talking. So this has come up a lot in the last few months with um, American, African-American vernacular and how this has got you know yeah. biases against it or like so many terrifying options honestly but yeah 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 so again technically impressive on most other levels i'm i'm very much afraid of these things and i'm very enthusiastic about new tech but artificial intelligence and its use is yeah i uh, yeah anyway I have something, I have a life hack that might come in very life useful. Um, because, Tegan, if I wanted to know the speed of light and I, I would only have a bar of chocolate in a microwave that I could give you, could you give me then the speed of light? Sorry, say it again. What have I got? <laughs> a, bar of, a bar of chocolate and a microwave. And I have to work out the speed of light. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean we're both biologists and not physicists. Um, I would eat the bar of chocolate. <laughs> then, and then reheat your lunch. Give you back and the microwave. <laughs> um, no, this is um, this. It's a, a tweet that I found um, that's very cool because what you can do when you turn off the um, the rotatey bit of the microwave, then 
um, your food doesn't rotate anymore and it sort of sits in this field of um, high frequency waves that the microwave cr uh, produces and then it will heat up certain parts of your chocolate and not heat up other parts of your chocolate and so you get like burnt chocolate in one some spaces and um, like unheated chocolate in other spaces and then uh, I mean if you click on the link in the show notes you can see the images that go along with it so you get like two bumps in the chocolate And then you can measure the distance between the two bumps because they um, are the distance between the sort of the highest amplitudes where you have the most energy transferred um, mm. of your wave. And then you figure out the frequency because you look at the machine. It tells you how what the frequency is. And then it's a simple no. calculation. No, um, this is ridiculous. Uh, of calculating of just like it's frequency times wavelength is the speed of light. And... With this measurement, they got very close to the actual speed of light. The, the error was, was rather small um, for such a crude estimate of the speed of light. And I just love that. I mean, we are like, this is a biology podcast and not physics, but sometimes I love how you can show like a very sort of high level physics with household objects. Um, and I find it always impressive. And in this case, yeah, you just need to. Uh, a microwave, a bar of chocolate, and you can run an experiment that can then give you the speed of light that you can calculate from that um, to very high accuracy. <laughs> Tegan's not I'm impressed. I mean, I'm shaking my head because it means nothing to me because, yes, you can calculate the speed of light, but like, <laughs> they only know that they're close to the speed of light because they already knew the speed of the light. Otherwise, they would have no idea how accurate their yeah, sure. bar method was in the first place. So, like... They could be like tenfold or a billionfold off and they wouldn't actually know if they didn't already know the speed of light. Yeah, but it's about the idea that like the speed the of light is made up. Yes. Makes like plays a role in things around us. And if it's just like the frequencies of the like the behavior of the waves that heat up our food. And that you can actually see sort of, I mean, usually when when I talk about wavelength or when I imagine wavelengths, I think about like light and then you are in the range of nanometers, and I'm always like I always have to actively remember that microwaves, they have wavelengths in the range of centimeters so that you have actually like tangible distances between sort of where the wave goes uh, along instead of like where in, in the light, visible light range where yeah, it's just, it's just a very small number. It doesn't mean anything to me. And that's why I liked it. I like the simple like at-home experiments. And if I would have a microwave, I would do that with my son eventually. But um, I don't have a microwave. So he will never know the speed of light from chocolate and microwaves mm. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the other thing that I have is uh, something that I found today about um, fish eggs and that they can survive being eaten by ducks so they did a study where um, I think carp eggs um, were eaten by ducks and then pooped out and then some of them only a few of them were actually able to to survive but some of them did survive And you might think, yeah, this is just like a weird story, like scientists who study like poop, duck poop. But mm -hmm. um, this could be a possible answer to the question of how do fish get to remote lakes? Sometimes you have lakes that are not connected to any other body of water. Oh, yeah. And there's fish in there. Yeah. Why? How do they get there? And one way could be that birds like ducks eat fish eggs and then a percentage of them, a small percentage of them survives. 
um, and then they get transferred to other places because then by just by the numbers, if you imagine like a flock of ducks and then each of them has a like 0.5% chance of transferring some some eggs from from a fish um, and you have a hundred um, ducks, you already have like 50 time 50 chances of bringing eggs to this sea. So in a sort of nature context, this might add up very quickly. Um, and yeah, and that's just um, a short short thing and i yeah i like the idea that we now have an idea how these remote lakes could be populated with fish yeah that's kind of cool it's not something i thought about um i have a cat fact Mm -hmm. you got a cat fact cat fact yeah um, yes, my catty catty kitty fact is actually about <laughs> the um, it's it's in Science Magazine. It's called Kitty See Kitty Do, um, and then cat imitates human in first scientific demonstration of behavior. So there's basically this idea of a certain kind of training that's called Do As I Do training, where you demonstrate a behavior and say Do it, and then reward the the animal if it does the same behavior, and then over time it associates this this term do it as an instruction to imitate because animals don't automatically imitate humans. That's not something that kind of comes naturally. So you have to kind of build in this, this idea Mm -hmm. of of doing it. Um, And apparently people have been trying to train dogs to do this, but somebody in Japan has recently shown that an 11 year old female cat named Ebizu um, is a, a very highly food motivated cat and could therefore be trained in this do as I do thing. So um, they demonstrated that the cat could watch the owner basically do actions and then copy them. So the cat already knows how to open a drawer and also like bite on a rubber string. I'm not, doesn't, honestly, that doesn't super sound like the cat was imitating the owner. It sounds like cats just like biting rubber strings to me, but this is not what the article says. Um, and then the, the owner ate, ate some cat food and the cat imitated the owner. Yeah, exactly. It's like, did, did the person do that first? Or did, like, was the owner just imitating the cat? Which, okay, which also brings us to the second thing, which is that the cat then did two new movements based on what the owner did. The first was touching something with its right hand or right paw. And the second is rubbing its face against a box, which again, (laughs) I'm not sure if it's, you know, life following art or art following life, by which I mean person following cat or cat (laughs) following person. Um, And this actually does come up is so... The cat very successfully did do this 81% of the time. Ibizu, the pussycat, was able to follow her owner and do the right thing. But there's some questions about, yeah, <laughs> if the cat just wanted to rub its face on the box, the cats <laughs> like to do that. Um, but it does seem that it, it could be true. And this could quite be quite big news because, um, according to the researcher, only dolphins, parrots, apes, and killer whales have been shown to just imitate people naturally. And the, the researcher, um, by the name of Fugatsa, also thinks that if this one cat can do it, probably most cats can do it. And the quote is, 
I don't think Ibizu was a genius. So she's basically saying, this is not the smartest of cats. If this cat can manage <laughs> it, it might just be a thing that cats can do it. And if cats can do it, that would also potentially mean that it's more of kind of a base or understanding that many mammals can do as opposed to mm-hmm. just these kind of what we consider to be highly evolved or highly like human-like, you know, dolphins and, and apes and, and things like that. So it's kind of cool. Hopefully people will find out that other animals and other cats in particular can do this imitation game. I mean, I've seen viral videos about cats that were raised by dogs and that behaved like dogs. So they must mm. have imitated the dogs um, by, yeah, because then the cat would then sit down and lie down differently. Like it would pant like a dog. It would run around like a dog. It would like wag its tail like a dog. So many things that, um, we think are intrinsically cat-like and sort of like genetic um, are learned behavior. So I guess, yeah, it doesn't surprise me too much. I mean, it surprises me that they the cat imitates a human that's like just looking very differently and the interaction is different than being raised by a dog. But, but still, I've also yeah. heard these, these arguments that um, cats don't usually meow very much as adults. They do that like as kittens they vocalize and then that, that, that mewing sound that we hear from our cats is an adaptation to trying to yeah. communicate with humans. I don't know if that's true or not. It's just something like, you know, one of those things yeah. you always hear as a cat owner. And that would also indicate that they're adapting their needs based on us and trying to talk to us kind of. Yeah, I hope that they mentally stay somewhat in a kitten um, mode. Yeah. Um, and keep meowing there, therefore. But uh, like again, like I don't have any sources for that now. It's just something I read yeah. somewhere where they say about like are cats as smart as dogs or not? Um, so yeah, cool. Um, before we go, I just want to remind you all that this week, I mean, it's ending now. Well, a couple more days. Um, it's uh, Black in Microbiology week so there's blackinmicrobiology.org that has the kind of schedule of different things that are happening um in programming this week so if you're listening to this on friday there's still microbiology careers day um then there's bacteriology is the theme of saturday and black in microbiome is sunday so Mm. check out the hashtags and the website if you want to learn more yeah thank you um, I think with that, we're done for this week. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. Um, if you're on Facebook or Instagram, it's at Plants and Pipettes. Uh, you can go to our website. It's plantsandpipettes.com, um, where we publish two articles per week. I'm pulling up the website to remind myself of what we talked Yara about this week. Yara wrote something about land plants and the development of the cuticle, so this waxy coating that kind of keeps plants from drying out. And that's really important because plants originally kind of came about in an aquatic environment in the seas and the ponds, so they had to eventually move to land, and that was very stressful because they kept on getting dry, and developing a cuticle might have been involved in not getting too dry. Uh, the other article is something you wrote about touching plants um, and how all plants are touch sensitive or at least they have the capacity to react to uh, environmental stimuli um, when being touched or when they, for example, grow through the ground, through the soil and they touch a rock and then they have to grow around the rock. All of these things are linked to touch response and um, a cool paper was there with the scientists poking individual arabidopsis plants like what was it like tens of times um with little cotton swabs 
Yeah, repeatedly. And not just poking them, but also they had a a weird mechanized hair system where they basically had this kind of sweeping robot that gently um, stroked the plants with hair um, to look at how they respond to that. <laughs> yeah. So you can find these things on our website. Um, you can f um, rate our podcast wherever you can rate podcasts on iTunes is very helpful if you could go there and give us all of the stars. Um, we're very happy to hear back from you. If you have any comments or suggestions, uh, you can leave that either as a comment under um, under this post here for for this yeah, episode. Yeah, you know what was nice? That, that person who said that Tegan was right last episode. Let's have yeah, more you, of that. You can also do that on Twitter and <laughs> affirm how, how right we are how sometimes. Right we are. <laughs> but also tell us if we're wrong because we would rather not always be wrong. <laughs> If we're wrong, we would like to self-correct, ideally. Opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank Goodbye. you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.